0: Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. You're home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you wanna join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host. So grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill and good faith. And I'm really excited to announce that it's easier than ever to find us and join our community, and that's on politicsandreligion.us. The A-N-D is spelled out, the and politicsandreligion.us. And on our site, I have a favor to ask. Would you consider becoming one of our patrons? Now that politicsandreligion.us is all set up, we're able to receive your support, so check it out give that some thought consider becoming one of our patrons it'll really help us keep the lights on and continue having the conversations like the one we're having today michael david cobb bowen is co-founder and co-editor of free black thought a group of scholars technologists parents and citizens determined to amplify vital black voices that are rarely heard on mainstream platforms michael is a business intelligence professional and data engineer He's a past contributor to NPR, Young Republicans, TV One, among others, and is an essayist on Stoic Observations. And on top of all that, Michael might describe himself as an entrepreneur, foodie, anti-fragile, true neutral, audiophile, gearhead, hacker, shooter, and ooda and I don't even know what that last one is. Either way, <laughs> it sounds like a fun mix of fascinating ingredients. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm really appreciative for you coming in. It's I'm a little intimidated, I have to say, I've read a lot of your work, and uh, it is just packed. It is dense with wit and the right kind of uh, skepticism and uh, narrative. and there, I, so I, I feel like I'm I'm a little out of my league, so I appreciate you bearing with me.
1: <laughs> I'm just a guy.
0: Just a guy just a guy with a, a heck of a lot of, of uh, wisdom and intelligence and like i said wit and it's just really fun getting to talk to you here. So since we're a show about politics and religion, i figured i'd my first question would be about religion. And you've mentioned that both of your parents each had a number of different chapters along their spiritual faith religious journeys. Yes yeah yeah. can you walk us through some of that and how that all affected your own religious thinking?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I grew up here in Los Angeles, uh, oldest of five kids. Uh, My father's from New Haven and my mother's from New Orleans. Oh. And uh, they met in New York, oddly enough. (laughs) Uh, So my father grew up, uh, his father was a big leader in the local church of Black Episcopalians. He knew them all in New England. He was a shriner. He was um, uh, an elk. He was a Mason, and uh, he was pretty well connected in that. Uh, But he, uh, well, my dad uh, studied sociology and then uh, went to the Marine Corps, and he came out of that, and he didn't go to church at all. So that was just how he was up, uh, his upbringing, uh, you know, kind of in the shadow of Yale University, kind of old school, proper, that flavor. My mother, on the other hand, uh, grew up, uh, her, her dad was a jazz musician and uh, he traveled around the world. And uh, her mother was a very, uh, she, was, she was a, a seamstress, a, a great, uh, I just learned this because my mother has a phenomenal memory uh, about uh, the, the, the cutting room and, and what different blades you used to use. But she was very um, a homebody where she lived in New Orleans in in a, a small parish, uh, and never really went further than you know a ten block radius. So my mother grew up in that cloistered kind of Catholic upbringing, uh, uh, very conservative. But then she had problems with with the Catholics in uh, New Orleans, and uh, so as they raised their family out here in Los Angeles, neither one of them brought up religion at all. And I never heard of this this character called Jesus until I was about uh, eight years old. Uh, And that's when my youngest brother was born with uh, spinal meningitis and nobody could figure out what was going on. And uh, it uh, miraculously cured itself. And this got my mother uh, back back on the boat uh, as it were. And so I had to erase all the peace signs from my notebooks uh, that I was going to school and you know, I had to read the Bible and I had to accept Jesus as my personal savior. And uh when people ask me about it, this is well, that's my business. He's he's my personal savior. I don't have to tell you what we talk about.
0: <laughs> the non-evangelistic
1: uh, approach. Right, right. Oh, but but she was with the Pentecostal church. Um, so uh there there and she is right now very fervently uh Christian, uh interprets all world events uh through the Bible. But my father gradually uh went back towards uh, the episcopal church uh i went to catholic school and and my best friend is jewish uh, so i've always had this no religion some religion my dad's religion my mother's religion the religion of the kids in the neighborhood which was baptist all over the place and then the religion at people at school and i went to uh, a, a a middle school uh, which was run by columbans and we had spanking nuns hell oh. And, uh, and then I went to a Jesuit high school. So, you know, by the time I'm 18 years old, I've seen six or seven different angles on, on religion. And, uh, you know, I I said, well, the bottom line is Christianity. And those are ethics. I think we can all understand. And they're not too, they're not too difficult to, to get around, get your head around.
0: Yeah. So, so you, you felt you were able to speak the cultural language, if you will, of any number of different Judaism, Catholicism, uh, Evangelical Christianity. What, what what denomination did you say your mother was? My mother was a Pentecostal, and and now she's a Seventh-day Adventist. Oh, wow. So those are, I'm still relatively new to, well, I guess not. I, I became a Christian about 20 years ago in my late 20s, but I grew up in a very observant Jewish household. Hmm. So we, um, we grew up in, first in New York, And then in New Jersey, but all the neighborhoods were either Jewish or Catholic. So and it was to me, it was all kind of the same thing. But then in my uh, in my 20s, when I got to know some evangelical Christians, that was a whole different thing. And I ended up becoming an evangelical Christian. But uh, so similarly, it it sounds like there are some similarities there. In fact, you said something, the Jesus character. When I first started reading the New Testament, to, to me, I was just looking at it from a very literary standpoint, trying to derive what this was saying you know, mm-hmm. what the human writers were, who, who they were writing to. Mm-hmm. I was I was looking for overarching themes and things like that. And I re- I thought of the Jesus character as just that. Obviously, it took on a whole different meaning for me uh, theologically. I do need to ask you about something, though. You, you mentioned that sure. your mother's father was a jazz musician. Yes. Oh, boy. So, OK, so I'm trying to place where that what period that might have been. I might be more familiar with the New York jazz scene. Was it the 50s that he was? most active or I,
1: I I imagine. So he was, he, he was around, he was a, a trumpeter. His name was Edmund Foucher.
0: Okay. And he was with Dejan's Olympia brass band. Oh, wow. So he was a trumpeter. So he must've been, he must've been somewhere between Dizzy and Miles ascendancy, right? Uh, uh I imagine so, but this was the,
1: the, the full improvisational thing. I, I remember the first time I heard him play, and it just sounded like everybody was going in their own direction. And I was kind of young to listen to jazz, but it was just a lot of traditional New York, uh, New Orleans uh, and second line kind of kind of jazz. OK, uh, so, yeah, he was he was a character.
0: Do you do you listen to jazz or are you jazz? Oh, fan? I do. Oh, man, I do. OK, so here's where I'm at. I any time that uh, Louis uh, rendition of La Vie en Rose comes on, I got to stop everything and just listen. Uh, that's one thing. Um, but I, I got, I got, I got as far as Monk and Coltrane, uh, and then Miles, obviously his, his blue period. But, um, once Coltrane started going avant-garde, I just don't think I'm a sophisticated enough listener, uh, for, for that stuff. Yeah,
1: that, that may be, I, and I, I, I don't like the, the new jazz so much. Uh, my approach to it, it w- was strange because, um, my, my household was musical. My dad had kind of eclectic tastes nothing particularly deep, uh, but that grew up in him over time. But I can remember the first albums I was listening to, uh, I listened to, uh, uh, uh the Basie, the atomic Basie. Okay. I mean, That's, that's like a childhood memory. Uh, also Peter and the Wolf, because it was a, a colored album. Oh, vinyl there. Uh, the four freshmen, uh, Nancy Wilson, Frank Sinatra, uh, the wee small hours of the morning. That's Mm, also just a, a a classic one for me. Uh, and so, and, and, uh, Henry Mancini breakfast at Tiffany's. I just love listening to that album.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So,
1: so, so definitely the, the atomic Basie and, and the, uh, and the, uh, breakfast at Tiffany's were just that and West side story. Those were like three thematic, uh, albums uh, from, from my young childhood. I mean, this is, I'm five or six years old and I'm loving this stuff.
0: That's sophisticated taste for a five-year-old. Um,
1: and we had a piano, the lady next door had a piano that I could bang on. Man. So, uh, if, if my school would have continued its, uh, music education, I'd probably be, uh, a, a pianist.
0: Well, I learned how to play piano just good enough to uh woo some girls.
1: <laughs> well, there, there there it is. That's yeah. the entire uh...
0: <laughs> there there it is, exactly. So if I got back to it, I just want to play scales for a year and just you know, and just really do it, you know, so I could play some monk and play some great compositions, play try try to come even one percent of the way that Oscar Peterson has gone. Oh, geez. Uh, you know, just yeah just kind of just play, you know,
1: I I love solo piano. Those are my favorite. um, Those are my favorite instrumentalists. Yeah. So um, but when I finally got into jazz, it was just I just thought it was inevitable. I think it was inevitable. uh, As as a sophisticate that I would get into jazz, I would get into classical. And and uh, so I kind of started when I got serious about listening in mid 20s. I started with the standards. I started with the the uh, a, a big stack of um, Duke Ellington, okay, and I learned all of those. and And Chelsea Bridge was one of my favorites, and just listened to that whole songbook. Man, and I enjoyed listening to multiple versions of the same song. So I I remember when Winton uh, Winton Marsalis' first album Think of One came out,
0: like eighty one or so.
1: Yeah, eighty two maybe, 82, yeah. 83. Yeah, uh, think of one. And 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 then I listened to him. And of course, Chick Corea, somebody tried to introduce me to Maha Vishnu. And I had already liked Stanley Clark and, and, and Chick Corea and that gang, uh, Return of Forever. And I tried to go to that level of avant garde and I couldn't follow it. I couldn't yeah. follow it. But the Romantic Warrior is still one of my all time favorite songs.
0: I do have to say that you mentioned Wynton Marsalis. Uh, somebody just asked me literally earlier today. Who who are my top three uh, people that I'd want to interview? And of course, I said Michael D.C. Bowen. But <laughs> so this is a dream come true. But Win Marsalis is definitely on my Mount Rushmore because talk about politics and religion, he puts it into sound, and he can. Yeah, articulate. he's a cool
1: dude. He's a cool dude. I met him at uh, oh. BAM. Where where'd you meet him? Uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music. Oh wow! He did, uh, he did um, a uh, he was playing the live accompaniment to uh bill T. jones uh griot new york uh i can still remember that and and uh, i was i was you know into the brooklyn scene with with uh my contemporaries at the time and uh i got i got to meet him backstage and uh he's a very mellow cool dude
0: what a treat so man what a me. treat that yeah that would be that would definitely be a dream come true i just he, he narrates the American experience with all of its with all of its flavor, you know, and with a sense of of grace uh, and poetry uh, while still holding on to, you know, some of the minor keys of our history, if you will. So I really appreciate how he's uh, his, his contribution to the culture. Hi, I'm Will, your political host and a cisgendered liberal Democrat. And I'm Pastor Josh, your faithful host and a conservative Republican who really is not sure what cisgender means.
1: If you're interested in politics and religion, make sure you check out our podcast, Faithful Politics.
0: Each week we do a deep dive into a topic that intersects with both these subjects and try to understand them through a bipartisan lens.
1: We bring in experts from the world of academia and those who work on Capitol Hill, as well as the White House.
0: Available wherever you get podcasts. But I, I could talk about jazz all day. But I, I also wanted to ask you a little bit. So, so I saw that you studied at USC and Cal State Northridge, right? Mm-hmm. In my neck of the woods. Did you? So you grew grew up in SoCal. I grew up in Crenshaw, West Adams. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: It's, it's 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 all getting nicely gentrified these days.
0: <laughs> oh man, you know I haven't gone too far outside, you know, in the last two years. But I, I got to go out yeah. and uh, see see how things are in in my old stomping grounds here. Yeah, right?
1: it's it's crazy. It's crazy.
0: So so what did you study? Uh, did you did you study computer science or r- right out of? the? Yeah, I did. Or?
1: In high school, I, I fell in love with the computer and, and you know, people were always telling me I was a smart kid, but I didn't know how I was smart. And then a sophomore year, I took uh, geometry. I took public speaking and I found the computer found the computer room. And I said, ah, I'm logical. That's that's what it is. That's that, and I finally understood why I was smart, because I just kind of listen to what people say and then watch what they do, and check the difference, and I and I, and I make logical, I make logical sense of life. Yeah. Uh, so I I originally uh, thought uh, I could get into well I I just loved USC, no no doubt about it. It was just the university. That's where I was. I thought I was destined to go. Uh, I couldn't afford it. But I went in, they didn't have a, a computer science undergrad. It was electrical engineering. So I said, well, if I can't program them, I'll, I'll build them. But I was always on the language side. Uh, they just didn't have uh, computer science and nobody had any idea in, in the late seventies that computer science would be as big as it is today. Uh, and then, so I dropped out and then I worked. I became a union guy. I did contracts, I did odd jobs. Uh, for four years. And then uh, I I worked my way through a computer science degree at uh, Cal State Northridge.
0: CSUN, yeah. So one of my best friends, Ira Rosenheim, who's in an adjacent field professionally uh, to to what you were doing, was trying to explain your specialties. I shared a little bit about your profile with him. He said that you help to develop cloud-based systems with a focus on high-performing databases. So I sort of understand that. Uh, and, and I'm almost afraid to ask you this way. It's a, it's like a meme that you've lamented sure. before, but can you explain that to me like I'm a five-year-old? <laughs> sure, sure,
1: sure. L I5.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, just as a un, uninitiated. Uh no, know. no, no. Okay. So so there are two granddaddies of databases,
1: and one of these guys was named E. F Cod. And E. F. Codd came up with an idea of relational databases. And and basically meant you can make everything logically into something like a table. So if you think of a spreadsheet, a spreadsheet is just a big table. So you name the columns, those will be called fields, and then you name the rows, and those will be called records. And then he came up with this combinatorial logic that says, well, if I have a spreadsheet over here that relates to a spreadsheet over here, all I have to do is match keys. So if, 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 if the key was, you know, uh, the state you were born in, and one of these is uh, car manufacturers and the others is just people, you can relate the car manufacturers to people by the state that they come from. And that would be the column state. And so that, that became the major paradigm of, of database technology during the 70s and 80s. And, and the, the, the IBM did it, Oracle did it, all these large companies. And so the telephone companies, you know, took it to the extreme because they had to bill everybody. So they had these huge relational databases. So every phone call that you made, you know, PacBell would have to put it into that database and charge you two cents or five cents or whatever. And so it turned out that as time went by, uh, you know, there's another guy named Peter Drucker. And Drucker said, professionals can manage businesses so why don't we why don't we forget this old idea that it's just if you're a rockefeller then you know a seat of the pants kind of business and say well, let's apply some some thinking to it some management skills and so you have this new invention called the MBA and the MBA doesn't have a seat of the pants feeling for their business. they kind of go like that the guy at Wall Street greed is good let's do buying and selling and trading companies and, and, and stuff like that. So the modern corporation was built here and they found out that they had all this data. The phone company had all of your bills for for 20 years. How could they improve their service by looking at their data? And when they did that and they tried to ask simple questions like which people buy the most phones, it just crunched all their computers. They couldn't handle it.
0: Oh, wow. So they had
1: billions of records and all of this data and no way possible to ask it a common sense question. Yeah. So then there grew a new branch of computer science that now we call data science. And we can make companies being data, data oriented, data centric, instead of seat of the pants. Right. So some real analytics, some real algorithmic stuff. And there are a new generation of databases that do that. So the other, the other titan of the database industry, is a guy named uh, Michael Stonebreaker. And he came out of MIT and he's a Turing Award winner, top tier computer science kind of guy. And he said, let's take that EF COD idea and make it work better. And long story short, he invented something called the Columnar Database. And his Columnar Database was called the C Store Project. And I work on the descendant of that. So the top database companies now in America use this fundamental idea, uh, so that you can actually do analytics and 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 that. So, that's that's where I work these days, and uh, it's good work.
0: Yeah, yeah. So vocationally, you've contributed a great deal in that field. Avocationally, at a certain point, you began writing online. I mentioned it a little bit earlier. Yes. But- and 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 specifically with a focus on social and political issues. Yes. At what point did you decide to to start writing? Also, how did you develop your writing style? As I said, it's so dense. Talk about New Orleans. It's like a it's like <laughs> a really good, thick root, you know, to get the whole yeah. thing going. Yeah, it is.
1: It is. Well, I was a, a sharp kid and I expected to go to, you know, USC and, and get an engineer's degree. They don't even have engineers degrees anymore. It's after the master's but before PhD Uh, and, and like most kids born my age, you know, I thought I'd be an astronaut or, and then by the time I was 18, I said, Oh, I want to be the computer guy on Jack Cousteau's boat. And so I knew I wanted to be the computer guy and, you know, some of my my family on the new Orleans side speaks French uh, because I had an uncle who was uh, in the original peace corps and he went to work in in, in West Africa. And so learning French was part of that that side of the family. So I had these language skills and I was always interested in writing the programs, not so much the machines themselves. I didn't love the machines. I didn't wanna be inside the machines. I wanted to use my language skills with these computer languages and express myself in a different way. And so I've always felt that I'm a writer for computers for machines and for people. And my first internships were at Xerox here in Southern California, and we wanted to create the office of the future. And so we had, you know, very fancy workstations, uh, and then Xerox kind of fumbled that future, as we understand. Uh, and, and Steve Jobs famously took a tour of the Palo Alto Research Center, which was owned by Xerox at the time, and took those lessons and, and made it into the Macintosh Whoa. so. I said, I I can be this yuppie, but I'll miss all this other stuff. You know, I I don't understand. I'm at Northridge and I don't understand why nobody talks about Shakespeare. Nobody talks about cultural things. Nobody talks about art. It's it's a commuter school and everybody wants to get an entry-level job. That's, That's the success criteria. And I'd already been educated by Jesuits. I know there's something more uh, to life than that, and so I always understood the technology because I started programming when I was 14, and then I just said, "Well, what 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 does the other half do? Who is this chatting class? W- why do people pay attention and and pay money to Irma Bombek? Uh, who is who is this guy? You know, who are all these writers? Uh, who is Camus? Mm-hmm. You know?" And so I had this curiosity about culture, and I wanted to talk to people. And then I realized, you know, after four years of not being in university, I'm socially isolated. And so I said, I gotta start reading. I gotta start doing something. I write poetry or whatever I do, or I'm gonna lose my mind. I'm just gonna hang out, you know, and 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 do nothing else. So I knew that I had to, you know, save my own intellectuality. And it was really fun going to college because, you know, now i'm 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 have all the privileges of a college student that I missed when I was you know eighteen years old uh, being older, and then I just said, "Oh, this is great. this is great." So I started reading some of the books that were on my dad's shelf. so I started reading Henry Miller, I read Malcolm X, I read a whole bunch of stuff, but it was always the music and the literature and the science put together, and I had to find a way out so At Xerox, when I figured, you know, I can get to this Fortune 50 company and they can mess up. Well, maybe I'm going to be underemployed for the rest of my life. I'll do this other stuff as as not a side hustle, but, you know, just to keep my mind going because I can focus all my mind and learn all this technology. And then three years later, Xerox says, oh, we're getting out of that business. We're not going to make computers anymore. I'm like, what, what? you guys invented ethernet and now you're not, you're not getting in the business. And so the guy who worked for Xerox went off and founded 3Com made a zillion dollars. The guy who founded um, Interpress, which was their language standard for printing went off and founded Adobe and they made a zillion dollars off of that. And I'm like, well, you know, this is, this is my fate. You know, I thought I was going to get in the corporation that was going to do the, and, and I just said, well, I'll do some writing. And, and I wrote, and just kept writing. And at some point when I was about 26, 27, that's when the the big poetry scene came on. And so uh, I started hanging out with the poets and and doing the poetry slams and that kind of stuff. And it was exciting, it was fun. I I did that bohemian lifestyle uh, for a while and, and, and I just kept writing. And the World Wide Web came along and I was there the whole time. So I've always been a writing writer online, a writer writes, and I always have done it in a Socratic method. So I'm, I'm going to put stuff out there, but I want to hear what you have to say about it. And then I have to respond. Yeah. And the more I did that, the more I realized that I had to use a proper English because English wasn't the first language of everybody I was talking to. I couldn't use my old slang that I talked in the hood. Uh, because they wouldn't understand what I'm saying. So my aim was to be unambiguous and clear and then just ask the way, ask the questions. And so my style of writing evolved from trying to be polite, trying to do things like a a structured debate, uh, trying to think about in the future, when they look back at this stuff, will they understand what we were talking about? Will they understand what were what were we thinking? So that's kind of my favorite question is what were we thinking? And and put it all out there. So so uh that eventually led me to stoicism, but there were a lot of side trips. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. So if if you're not paying close enough attention, you might think that some of your pieces are free flow of thought. And in a way it is, but mm-hmm. there's a certain structure to it and references that are dropped in throughout a um, one line of thinking. Um, And there is a flow and and you could sort of, I see where I see what you're talking about. That's I I was thinking before you even said it, that poetry is you're all over poetry because that combination of a love of language a love of literature yes. um th- the logical side that needs to come with your computer science back that or that i guess feeds yes. your computer science vocation and so many other th- or the the music of language all these things sort of feed into each other where poetry would make sense it's still even in your prose though it still shows up not to blow you know smoke but it still shows up in in, in your writing right. so you've you've alluded to you, this um, sort of journey, the way mm-hmm. you, you're social, socially think, thinking in terms of social issues, political issues. You said about yourself, I have been left, I have been right, and now I am stoic. So first, can mm-hmm. you tell, uh, for, for our audience and for me, can you tell us what sure. it means to be stoic in a, in a contemporary context?
1: There's there's actually a, a kind of a, a metaphor and an image that I get when I think about people who follow the news so much that they, they, they like the NPR news, news quiz. So if you're, you know, if you're playing trivial pursuit, you know, you have to have the answer and, and that's kind of what the NPR news quiz seems like to me, which is, you know, are you up on the news? What would this person say? And it's kind of fascinating to me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to make this into a story. <laughs>
0: No, you can, you can storify it. <laughs> sure. So, so,
1: you know, um, somewhere my junior year in high school, I pretty much kicked butt on all the standardized tests and I said, okay, I'm pretty smart. I know which way I'm going to go. I'm going to go to USC, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm at home board doing nothing. And I watch this show and there's some guy named Regis Philbin who's sitting up there and he's, he talks about the fact that he has perfect feet and everybody knows that Regis Philbin has perfect feet. And so he's telling jokes about celebrities and restaurants in West LA. And I have no idea what he's talking about. He's like, if somebody said Dua Lipa, all right? I don't know who Dua Lipa is, my daughter does. So she's, she's a musician and, and she makes fabulously produced records. But there's the audience is cracking up He's obviously a powerful, a popular guy. And he knows all of West L.A., and I have no idea what he's talking about. So now I have to open up my head to this whole new genre of talk, this entertainment talk, so I could get the jokes. I want to, I want to laugh along with the audience. And so I started reading Los Angeles Magazine and and the the Reader and the L.A. Weekly, and I got into all that you know West Side L.A. kind of stuff and then I learned to eat Thai food and I learned to eat sushi and all the LA things, right? So I think about bourgeois America. Why do we listen to the news? Because we want to seem informed and and we'll pass all the news quizzes and we think we're informed, but we might not ever really read a 200, 300, 400 page book about the subject. So there's this stream of news and we're poking our fingers into that stream And it's bending our hand into strange, obscene things uh, because we know this, or we're trying to know this, or we're trying to grasp it. And so I keep thinking about an ape who's putting his hands into a news stream. And even though he has these gorilla arms, it's bending his fingers backwards. He can't hold it all. And he tries to take up a handful and bite a piece. uh, And and, then there's never enough. The stream never ends. So how do we get distorted? How do we get bent out of shape by trying to grab all the news? All right, so we've just had war break out in Europe and everybody's trying to have the answers. Everybody's trying to figure it out. And, And we don't figure it out. We can't figure it out. There's too much to know. There's too many gigabytes of information and it's all unleashed. And so we lose ourselves and, and people defriend each other on Facebook because they're not doing the talking points here. And, and everybody's getting canceled. You know, I saw this coming uh, because people are just too greedy for information. There's just, well, there's another story or another, you know, study out of the University of Wisconsin that says red meat is good for you. And then, oh, well, there's another story that a line a day doesn't work for you. And then here's a human interest story about a woman from, from Uzbekistan who lived 109 and she drinks whiskey every day. And we don't know who to believe. Right. And there's no room for common sense. And so people distrust themselves. They distrust the government. They distrust the society because everybody gets a chance to speak. And, and we're just sticking our hands into the news stream and all the water flowing through our fingers. We, we, we never get enough. And that is a distorted way to think about life, to think about, I need to know the right answer on the Ukraine situation. I need to know the right way towards peace in the Middle East. And people get all bent out of shape and hating each other over well, which way do you draw the line in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, you know? And, and, and I'm like, you got to be focused on yourself you know, you have to heal yourself, you have to cure yourself, and, and you're not going to be a, a, a right person if somebody can come up with, a, with an idea, and then you're all, all focused on that. And so I, I think the news industry doesn't care about the holistic person. They only care about them, you know, as an entity for, for money and votes. That's definitely what the parties want. The parties want money and votes. Uh, The the religions want your soul. You know, the banks want your money. Everybody wants a piece of you, and nobody wants you to be whole. And whatever the situation is, you can kind of tell who's going to say what ahead of time, uh, because they're all bent out of shape about things that they can't control, and that they can't understand. So when I was left, and when I was right, I saw People defy their principles for expediency, and their principles were good principles, and they, they remain good principles, but they can't handle all the situations that life shows us. And so, what, whatever it is, you know, how to, how to fix a banana souffle? There's a conservative way to fix a banana souffle, or there's a conservative, or, or there's a liberal <laughs> way, or there's a progressive way, and then you have to, you know, have this, this multicolored flag. And, and declare your pronouns, and they want to control you as a person for the sake of an ideology, and the only way out of that, uh, seems to me, is to put yourself in another historical context, one that, that nobody's talking about, so maybe you go play a video game, and you get to be um, an Italian baron in the 1400s. And then nobody's politically talking about being an Italian baron in the 1400s, and you can enjoy fresh fruit. You know, I, I, I played this game called Assassin's Creed, and it put me there, and I was like, I could I could do this. I could live in in the in the 15th century, and I think I'd be quite happy. And and so as soon as I rec- recognized that I could be happy in the 15th century, you know, eating fresh bananas and, and grapes. I was like, oh, maybe I had to look at what those people did to keep themselves happy. And, and um, that kind of thinking got me out of the contemporary thrash. Uh, and and it, it saved my soul in a way. And I am sympathetic, but also kind of feeling sorry for people who have to have the latest news. And, and what a disappointment. Like, you know, conservatives don't know what to think about Russia right now. You know, if you say Trump and Putin, and then it just rings alarm bells and then people, they have the answers. Right. But they don't have all the answers and they can't tell the information from the disinformation. And it's it's a terrible place to be. I mean, you don't even know if you're an American anymore. Uh, and, and, And that's what I that's what I sense that people are having a difficult time being a weird individual and making sense of life. Uh, and there's just some basic things you have to do that have to do with virtue and discipline and uh, you'll come out. Okay.
0: <laughs> well, I wasn't sure how we'd get from Regis's perfect feet to contemporary <laughs> stoicism, but you pulled it off, man. So, <laughs> so, okay. So my friend Ira, who I referred to before he sent in a question, he said, I'd be curious to understand where he's where Michael sits at the intersection of technology and stoicism he uh ira said if i remember correctly stoics are mainly focused on getting joy from what you have and not worrying about what they don't have but technology tends to be focused on finding ways to make our lives better and filling perceived gaps in happiness fruitfulness so how do you reconcile the two
1: i think about the logos and if you if you read the bible you would remember the beginning of john in the beginning was the word and the word was, was God, with God and the word, and the word was, was God and the same was in the beginning with God all things were made by him and not nothing that was not made was you know, something like that
0: yeah fast forward in, into uh, verse 13 or 14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us
1: right and so the idea of of the logos is this is 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 continuous throughout history so even if you're back in in 1400. You're not a different kind of homo sapien than we are. Nobody evolves that quickly. Maybe maybe the stomach bugs do, but but we don't evolve that that quickly. And what common sense has been and continues to be is is the way we order logic and way we discipline ourselves to the logic. And so sticking close to that is rewarding in and of itself. And I happened to to uh, study the Tao when I was in my 20s. And that was very useful to help me um, just center myself. Because, well, I, 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 I'm not even fluent in what I learned, but it, it did put me at peace. But logic is at the center of this. There is a good way to live. And you'll be psychologically damaged if you go against it. Because you, you you won't be able to reconcile you know what you can do, technology works for me because of the the expression of computer languages that you can you can come to a point where you have something that 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 makes sense, and even in video games we can create universes of logic uh, that you can walk through and you learn the rules of your environment. And these can be fake environments, but it's something we all understand. It's something, the same thing that attracts us to the ideas presented in the matrix. You know, what is real? Are these rules good for me? And in areas of interest in, in, in business intelligence or in the intelligence business itself, a geopolitical intelligence, there are kind of rules that you can follow and things that you can codify and say this is the way we can do X, Y, or Z, and and it's it's an interesting way of learning. It is it is part and parcel of the philosophy of science, and and we get away from that at our own peril. Uh, I, I think very much about you know how to be free. You ask, what is an Uda Buddha? Uda <laughs> was a concept: um, observe, orient. Direct and, and and analyze, and it's a loop, and it was invented by a guy named John Boyd, who was basically the the master of modern aircraft combat technologies. And, so, and what techniques. are the four
0: letters again? O O D A. O O D A. And and it yeah. stands for. I think Get... it's
1: observe, orient, react, analyze. Okay. And and it's a loop. So, what you want to do is loop faster so you learn faster and and that translated for him to design airplanes that could turn faster because then that changes the situation and If you can react faster and move faster, uh, then you learn more, and you 're ahead of
0: the enemy or, or or your opponent the The other thing that occurs to me is as something you were saying before it sounds like you have some ambivalence about. Maybe and correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe you believe in the freedom of speech, but are ambivalent about the accessibility of microphones.
1: Mm, I, I think I think it's it's fair to say it's important that certain people be as correct as they possibly can be. So so I, I don't I don't want a tyranny of logic. And I don't want all of our expectations to be the same for everyone. I think there's room. Well, there's, there's a necessity for leagues. There's a necessity, necessity for classes. And, and, you know, just because you love basketball doesn't mean you need to go one-on-one against Michael Jordan right. or LeBron James. Because if you went one-on-one against LeBron James, you'd hate basketball. You're like, there's no way I can win. I can't even get close to the basket, you know. He steals the ball away from me every time, and and you don't want to you don't want to have a singing contest against Dua Lipa. and most people don't want to argue against their own minister. Most most people can't count out math their own high school math teachers, so we want leagues where there's people around our skill level and ability, and we can compete fairly with them. So so I'm not suggesting that there's there's a tyranny, and that means. Michael Jordan shouldn't be hanging around the playground saying, oh, you want to, you want to shoot for some money? No, he should play in, in his league. So the philosophy of science helps us all to, to correct mistakes and then improve, but we have leagues. And so it's, we don't, we don't break our necks feeling bad if somebody says 3.3 3 plus 2 is 7, you know, if they're in the third grade. But if that's the chief NASA engineer and he's saying three point plus two is seven, we're going to lose a probe or we, uh, <laughs> the shuttle's going to blow up. Yeah, because we thought we thought the temperature in the O-ring was this temperature. So so it's it's more costly for people in positions of power and authority uh, to be wrong.
0: Yeah. So it's it's an interesting way to think about it, to to create leagues uh, so <laughs> the cynic in me is is thinking about a lot of folks who are decrying, you know, elitism and, you know, first learn what you're talking about in terms of the elites, you know, right. before you start complaining about it. You, you know, to your point about the rocket scientist, we would prefer that they knew their math before sending people out into space with, right. you know, <laughs> somebody who doesn't know how to their multiplication tables. So, okay.
1: And I have known people who, who, who used to work for Elon Musk and just I just can't keep up that pace anymore.
0: <laughs> it's, it's tough. It's yeah. tough working
1: for that guy.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So yeah. Open up all the microphones, but don't judge everybody the same.
0: Yeah. It, it's, it's the
1: stupidest thing of all to not let people, you know, the ordinary person, you know, let them have the comment section, let them say what they're going to say. Right. They're really not going to change the direction of tanks. In Ukraine. Yeah. No matter what they say. So 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 don't hold everybody to this ridiculous standard and and, and cancel people who, who, again, violate what you've hold your hands out in the news stream to say, oh, this is the new way things are supposed to be.
0: So in a sense, you do believe in a meritocracy. So, for, for you know, so I'm thinking about this platform, you know, mm-hmm. and listen, we don't have the same level of listenership as somebody like Dan Bongino does now or sean hannity's nightly viewership but 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 that's that's okay that's okay you know i i'm getting on other programs now that that have you know small listenerships Mm -hmm. i i shouldn't go on even the dispatch at this point or or the bulwark at this point because i'm not ready for it Mm -hmm. i'm not ready for that level of conversation i was in a conversation with a lady uh, wonderful woman who is a fellow at American Enterprise Institute. Mm. And not not every conversation is within my expertise, let alone one that I am even conversant in. And her name's Danny Pletka. And I was able to ask intelligent questions until I got to a point where I thought I knew enough about it to assert uh, somewhat of an opinion. It right. was about, um, oh gosh, Bahrain. (laughs) Okay. And this like with somebody as intelligent and sharp as as Danny Pletka, she she pounced as the second that I showed my ignorance. And it was a lesson well learned. I wasn't really like I haven't earned the right to a certain opinion in a conversation with someone like that. (laughs) You
1: know, you you do. You do have that right. Because because and I was just really thinking about this just before I came on At, at some point. In your career in IT, you will master a language. And and I thought about this uh, in my 40s. I was like, all right, I have mastered this technology. I have done stuff with it that it wasn't supposed to do. That's how good I am with it. What do I do next? And I recognize these classes, uh, what I I, I call the classes of, of ambition. So you start off as a clueless newbie. All you want to do is ask questions. You want somebody to pay attention to you. So, hey, hey, me, 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 can I Can I do this? And then after two years, you become a journeyman. You know, I, I know what the tools are. I know where they go. I know how to make them work. And then you, you get to a point of mastery. Okay, I've mastered these tools. Not only do I make them work, I make them work where they're not even supposed to work. So mastery goes two ways. You can be the go-to guy or you can be the guru and the guru looks at the philosophy of using these tools. And the go-to guy, he runs all the newbies and, and and the journeyman says, okay, we're going to get this done. We're going to do it there. And then the other guy looks at the tau of that. This is the beauty of execution. When you, when you do this philosophy, uh, when you, when you map, we have this mastery, then you get to the rulers and there's, there's, two kinds of rulers. And one ruler is called the Lord. And the other ruler is called the Demiurge. These are these, are, these are the positions of power. All right. The Lord is his business to make your business his business. All right. He's the guy named Vinny, and he knows everything about you. <laughs> he knew everything I he knew, he asked you who sent you to see me, but he already knows that. Yeah, right. The Lord is is the amusement park. He's the guy with the sign, you can't be this tall, and and you can't get on the ride. (laughs) Then there's the Demiurge. The Demiurge is just this master creator, just creates worlds. He designed the roller coaster that you really want to go on, all right? And then at the top of this is the servant. And the servant may or may not even exist, but he's the reason that you were in the amusement park in the first place. He's the, the reason, and, and the servant can serve from the bottom. He, he's like Stephen Biko in the crowd in South Africa. He's not at the podium, he's walking around in the crowd with a microphone and everybody can hear his voice, but nobody knows where he's where he's at physically. And we need to understand the brilliant value of service. And anyone who's, who's a Christian, understands this metaphor yeah i i I came not to be a king right and and then i'm i'm liberating all these people with this new logos that i'm giving you and so you always deserve to be able to ask a question to an expert because the expert should be washing your feet all right the expert should be so glad that she's learned all of these books behind her she's read them all and you're actually interested in finding out. So she should never punish you for being
0: curious. I do have to clarify. Danny was so classy about it. Oh,
1: I understand. I understand. And uh, and, 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 and that's, again, with leagues. There has, there has to be a clear way for you get to get to that place. Yeah. So your leagues have to have fair competitions. So when you want to know Bahrain, then somebody will say, these are the seven books you have to read. To understand right. the history of Bahrain. Right. Instead of, you know, you're, you're looking at YouTube and RT and Al Jazeera and everybody and Facebook and yeah. Instagram. And you're never going to find out the truth there. So that's that's the role still for for education and educators. And, and everybody who's an influencer now has some responsibility to help us along that path. Yeah. Because we we're on the path of ambition. We want to know. We want to we want to grasp the tools. Right. We want to climb that ladder and serve ultimately to serve mankind.
0: So we're 50 something minutes into this conversation and I have not brought up uh, free black thought. So so May 22nd, 2020, Nicole Hannah-Jones tweets. (laughs) There is a difference between being politically black and being racially black. She uh, subsequently removed that tweet. But Did you at that moment get on the phone with Eric Smith and Jason Littlefield, Toya Smith and say, we got to do like how did this whole thing come about? Tell us about free black.
1: Well, you know, I I uh, I was a big brother and I grew up in a rough and tumble neighborhood. So I have a natural affinity for MMA, which means I watch Joe Rogan. Okay. And so I saw the first podcast with um, Jordan Peterson and Brett Weinstein. And I was just blown away. I, I couldn't believe that. And, and I understood how political correctness has gotten worse and worse over the years. And, and, I, and I recognize, again, how they do damage to the philosophy of science, how they ignore the logos, how they call it discovery to discover the blackness of the guy who went to the North Pole. And then you can celebrate. Oh, this black man went to the North Pole, but you learn absolutely nothing about the North Pole. All you care about is the color of the person who went there, and and so you're not teaching geography. You're teaching ha- hagiography. So as the racial thing has gotten wrong, it is gone completely wrong direction. Which is, if you think you have a different message to a person about race depending on what race they are and depending on what race you are, then you can't be telling the truth. You're making up a story that you think they wanna hear or you think it's good for them. And and, and that's just wrong. Uh, And and so many people are color struck and wrongheaded on this. It does damage to truth. It does damage for the ability to find out the truth. It does damage to the very notion of saying your mind is capable of learning anything. All right. There are people are shocked that, you know, a person of color, quote unquote, likes to eat raw fish. Yeah, but I grew up in a neighborhood where, yeah, at the bowling alley, there was a sushi bar in 1975, <laughs> uh, because this was a this was a, a Nisei uh, second generation Japanese neighborhood where I grew up in Crenshaw Holiday Bowl. And, and I love Tsukimono, because the, and that was their little uh, salad. But to come up with these new racial rules is, is a bad idea. But Jones had something, a, a kernel of truth there, which is saying, uh, Chuck D said it another way, every brother ain't a brother. And so ultimately, you kind of have to understand that every African-American is not going to think the same way. They're not going to grow up in the same neighborhood, even though it's the same three or four directors that get to write the Boys in the Hood movies and they portray all these stereotypical characters in the stereotypical way. And that pained me coming from South LA, which suddenly became South Central and all the, the things uh, you know associated with that Thanks for nothing, Mike Davis, writer of City of Quartz*. Um, (laughs) You damn socialist. (laughs) And the truth about your own neighborhood, you can't represent that as well as, you know, the famous people who get major media coverage. And so what has to be acknowledged is diversity of thought, diversity of opinion, And you have to do honor to the the process of correcting errors, which means everybody gets to raise their hand and says, you know, I'm not sure of what you're saying there is true. Let me tell you something, another logical way to look at this. And unless you're having that open uh, debate with with respect, then you're shunning people and and you're you're making it a a, a self-fulfilling idiocy. You know, because this is, well, no black person ever does that, all right? Or all black people should do this. And I learned the hard way, you know, you you should not second guess black folks. You shouldn't second guess anyone. Uh, And manners are the way to get in. And we don't care about manners anymore. We just like, we're just crazy AF. And we thought, we we think we can do that all the time. And it's not wrecking society because there are people who still have respect and still people who can debate and still people who can correct errors and are gracious about it. But we can get isolated, those of us who who value truth, who value debate, who value discovery, who value reason and humor. And when that gets to the university, when the university is challenged in its ability to provide An environment for discovery, and humor, and reason, and thoughtfulness. Then, society's in trouble. Yeah. And so it's we're in a bad point. We're still not as bad as the '70s, you know, but we're in a bad point, and and we need we need to fix things.
0: Yeah. So uh, just uh, so folks know a little bit more about free black thought, what platforms uh, are you engaged in, or how would you engage that? different points of view can be heard uh, and be part of a larger conversation?
1: So freeblackthought.com spelled the ordinary way. And then uh, down below in the description, (laughs) uh, there's, there's a Twitter account Uh, right now. We're, we're over 30,000 followers from scratch. uh, We're, we're barely a year old, Uh, but we're making an impact and people are coming to us saying, thank you for existing. Uh, So we're kind of, we're kind of, Alt black. And, 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 and we put together this compendium, you know, because we're we, we have academics who, who've read a lot of this stuff and who are who are thoughtful people who care about the quality of discussion and debate uh, and the search for truth and the realization that we don't all find the truth. Yeah, that it shouldn't be a, a more painful process than it needs to be uh, to be wrong. Right. So let people be wrong.
0: And let people be judged fairly. So, before I ask my last question, uh, I want to give you a fair shot to, if you have any, and ask if you have any questions for me.
1: Well, how do you see, how do you see this the new media? Uh, what what can we do to preserve an open society when we know that uh, you know Whoopi Goldberg or Joy Behar? Or whoever is the the spokesman uh, in in the White House press room can say something that people will believe, whether or not it's true. How 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 do we how do we percolate through society when when we don't have royalty?
0: So I think you're already doing it. Uh, I'm trying to do it in my own way. I mentioned a couple of media independent media platforms earlier, Bulwark. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, dispatch, the Dispatch, politicology, stand up with Pete Dominic, Matt Lewis in the news. There's all these. So, some of my favorite, so some of the folks that I follow most closely, whether I agree with them all the time or not, are folks who had great success and were prominent voices within a certain movement, mm-hmm. and then risked and ultimately lost a great deal because they took a stand on principle. Mm-hmm. Those are the folks that are the most interesting to me. So all, all of your what you're writing on Substack, that's that's a good way to start. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's 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 part of it. That's part of the answer to exactly what you're asking. Now. The democratization of of media, the, the ability for independent voices like yours and like mine to to speak up. The, the tools that we use in order to do it, the accessibility of it isn't good or bad. Thus, sometimes bad voices and bad ideas and bad yeah. mores are going to enter into some uh, thinking that's like a wave that all of a sudden we, well, are, are we all supposed to assume this? And it's the very questions that you're th- that you're asking or some of the ideas that you're overtly pushing back on. So mm-hmm. I think that this is a good start. I think that it's not just three networks and PBS anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not just, you know, the AM and the FM dial. It's, it's not just, you know, it goes so far beyond that. And I think even though, you know, I was sort of alluding to it before, even though I don't have 11 million, like, like Joe Rogan, I don't have 2.3 like Tucker on a nightly basis, but I got Mm -hmm. a few, I got a few, a few hundred, a few dozen, a few thousand, you know, uh, and and growing. And that's kind of cool. That that we can have conversations with individuals like yourself, with individuals like Danny Pletka, with individuals like uh, Dr. Russell Moore. I mean, talk about a guy who is who is prominent in the in the evangelical movement in the in the Southern Baptist Convention. And he said, "No, you know something? When children are being abused, we have to investigate that. We have to stop it. We have to care for our victims." And mm-hmm. if we as an organization disagree with that notion, I cannot be part of this organization. So now Dr. Moore has his own newsletter, has, you know, has has his own voice, places where someone like that, those are principles I can align with, even if I don't necessarily align with all of his political and theological positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are some things where we can agree. So I, I don't know if that necessarily fully answers your question, but but I'm encouraged by folks who are willing to risk something, risk even just their popularity, let alone their yes. income. We had we had Congress, former Congressman uh, Joe Walsh, who you know he was in Congress and they had this national radio platform, and mm-hmm. and and he said and he voted for Trump the first time around, but he, mm-hmm. he said at a certain point I forget if it was um, Charlottesville or Helsinki he he said at a certain point he just couldn't do it anymore. Right. You know, but it cost him something because his he's a rich man. He was a rich man because he had millions and millions of listeners. But he just couldn't right. if, if the listeners were listening to him to try to pretend that he believed in 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 what Trump was saying in, in Helsinki, that Putin's better than my own intelligence community, that right. I'm favoring or favor, you know, like or or any one of those mental and, and moral acrobatics that you got to do in order to continue right. in that. But he said, <laughs> it's OK. I don't need that income because that's dirty income that's, you know, so folks who still want to want to engage with me. And if I, if I can figure out a way to pay my rent, um, you know, some other way, maybe I'll drive, you know, a a $15,000 car instead of a hundred thousand dollar car and it's all good. You know, so those are the voices that I'm as a consumer drawn to and a thinker, somebody Mm -hmm. who wants to process all these things, philosophically, theologically, socially, You know, but also as as someone who wants to participate in it in some small way, so these are the things that are rattling around in my noggin. (laughs) Cool,
1: cool, cool. yeah, I I I understand that. I understand that. It's for me, uh, and that'll probably be the next thing I'm going to write about. It's unfinished. It's how well does do your morals scale, and and our thinking, and our memory. It, It doesn't always scale, and and sometimes we 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 get more audience than we deserve uh and 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 we can't handle that. And I think it, it, you know if you look at the lives of celebrities that's half of their life is figuring out how to how do I survive all the scrutiny? How do I survive having, you know, 50 million fans? Uh it, it's 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 a scary thing. And and none of us are good at it. And yeah. and and none of us evolved to be good at it. So there's there's uh, we were ta- I was talking about slavery this past couple of weeks or so. And the notion of one of the excuses for slavery is, well, you need handlers, these people to handle these other things. I can't be cooking my own breakfast. I can't be making my own coffee. You know, I'm the genius here. So I need this this help. And then I immediately thought about, you know, famous comedians or stars in their entourage and their personal shoppers. And they're, 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 they're minions. And those are the minions that are necessary so that you can reach the millions. It, it doesn't scale. That's, that's not real leadership. And you have to order people around in order to keep that quote unquote leadership. And that's, yeah, that's what dictators do. Cause I'm the guy, don't you know who I am? <laughs> and so, you know, maybe, maybe we, maybe we need to scale back. Maybe, maybe we need, um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think, distributing power helps and getting people away from these national hot button issues help Uh, because we will sacrifice local control if we keep ceding to these celebrity politicians and and their and their narrow focuses yeah and and their cultural personality it's 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 a dangerous thing and and it's the opposite of democracy it's the opposite of self-determination right so people should take care of themselves their neighbors, their family, uh, scale it down and 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 live a high quality life without worrying so much about, you know, do I have a million followers?
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I had a conversation uh, kind of along those same lines about, uh, I, I finally got on TikTok. <laughs> so, ah. so, you know, so the conversation was about building up the followers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized, okay, it's really easy to get caught up in that sort of hamster wheel of yeah. like, got to get more followers. But the thing is, the the presence on TikTok isn't necessarily to promote the the podcast. It's just another place where we can engage in a different kind of a way. Yeah, We're, I'm not passionate necessarily about growing the followers. I'm passionate about engaging with people of goodwill in good faith on important matters. You know, yeah. and whether that's through a podcast or on TikTok, you know, or doing the cha-cha or whatever it might be, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, this is a this is an absolute blast. I'm so glad I had the chance to talk to you. And you. We're in each other's neck of the woods. So maybe we should get some sushi or something like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, man. That'd be fun. I, I know... You know some great places. Sushi, ramen. OK. All right. I'll have I might have to defer. I'm a, I am a sushi snob, though. I will tell you in advance. Like if we're doing okay. New York theater, I'm going to pick the theater. I'm going to pick the play, but I'm still open. You know, I'm still, right. we're actually going to Katsuya tonight, the original. Uh, all right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, that's all right. I'm always open. If somebody knows sushi, I'm always open to a new idea. Excellent. All right. So before we go, how can we find more info about you? Free black thought, the essays that you're, that you're sharing, how, how can we find you online?
1: Sure. You're, I'm at uh, stoic observation. So it's MDC Bowen substack.com. And you can also go to mdcbowen.info and about.me slash mdcbowen. Yeah. <laughs> so there's only yeah. one mdcbowen out there.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. So it's mdcbowen.com and mdcbowen.info.
1: .info gets you everywhere. And dot okay. .org gets you uh, to some of my old stuff.
0: Okay. All right. And then Free Black Thought, again, it's freeblackthought.com. A lot of good yes. stuff there. So, Mike, I really appreciate getting to know you better. I do hope it's not the last time we hang out. And uh, thanks for thanks for doing this. Okay. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's It's politicsandreligion.us, politicsandreligion.us. You can even support our program through the patron app on our site. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, It is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the "and" spelled out, A-N-D. politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at tpandrpod. You know, tpandrpod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Chikuno Olam.